I'm delighted that we have our old friend on Church and Culture, Guy Ricards, back with us today. We're going to be talking about a composer that he has called one of Britain's finest composers in the last past half century, John McCabe. Before we do, remind you that Guy Ricards is one of the premier freelance writers on music in the English language. He publishes regularly in Gramophone, which itself is the premier classical music magazine in the English language. I've been reading it actually all my adult life. He writes program notes and profiles for BBC, written obituaries of composers for The Guardian. He's written books on composers like Hindemith, Hartman, and Henze, as well as Jan Sibelius, as we did, if you may recall, an entire program on the Sibelius symphonies. He contributed three of the eight chapters of the life and work study of John McCabe, who we'll be talking about today. And he was appointed Harold Truscott's musical executor by his widow, Margaret, in early 1993. And then, very importantly, he is the honorary secretary of the music section of the UK Critics Circle. Guy, welcome back to Church and Culture, and tell us about your fondness for John McCabe. Well, he was a marvelous composer. He was a marvelous pianist, and he was uh, a marvelous chap as well, one of the nicest and, uh, uh, and kindest people uh, that uh, I, I've come across in, in music. No airs and graces about him at all. Um, and this from a man who... One of the first, I think the first to record all the Haydn piano sonatas, which is still, this recording is still the benchmark recording. I, I, that's how I knew McCabe. I, I, I collected that's, the entire set of records of his Haydn sonatas. And, and, and for many, that was their first um, introduction to him. He was kind of curious because he became known first as a pianist. Then he was composing all the time. Then he became known as a composer. And different times, the pianism and the composition came into the forefront of people's attention. He sort of flip-flapped between the two in a, you know, a rich, uh, creative life. Um, Marvellous composer. There's no music quite like it, which is always a good thing. Um, very compelling, very attractive, uh, nice to hear. Although it can be a little abrasive at times when he wants it to be. Uh, well, as I told our engineer, Steve Clark, uh, this music is going to be a little more challenging than some we've played in the past, so I just want our listeners to be prepared to be challenged a little bit, orally. Uh, Guy, you may think that I'm very old-fashioned in saying that, but I, I do want to sort of set a context where people will appreciate the fact of what you're bringing to us. So what, how are we going to begin? So we're going to start with, I suppose, what in a way was his initial breakthrough work. Um, it's, it's a piano piece which he wrote for himself to play. It was submitted to uh, Novello's, the publisher, for um, a competition or symposium that was being judged by the great John Ogden. Ah. And lots of composers wrote in and, and submitted scores, and Ogden then made a selection for, this is the 19, early 1960s, and he um, selected McCabe as one of the pieces that he thought was a standout piece. It's a set of variations on a theme of McCabe's own devising. And we'll hear a little bit of the start of that uh, piece. It's running to 10 minutes in total. We have the first couple of minutes, so you get the theme being um, put out, and then the first variation or two. And the variations are not clearly defined, like in, say, the Elgo Enigma, they, they blend into each other. So it becomes a whole piece. It's not sort of like a sequence of, of miniatures. And I take it that John McCabe himself is playing. This is McCabe himself playing if he recorded it twice. Well, let's listen to the first few minutes of his variations for piano of 1963. Thank you. 
those first few minutes of John McCabe's variations for piano and early work, and I like that quite a bit. It's very meditative. Yeah, he's, his music is always strong on atmosphere, and those very low notes at the beginning create this slightly subdued but slightly expectant atmosphere. Great pianistic technique because it ranges up in that little last section you heard there quite high in the keyboard as well, but everything is interconnected with itself. Variation form, in a way, was his guiding compositional principle right from the start, right into his, his last works. He wasn't so much a, a, a standard symphonic composer that you might expect from someone like Christopher Rouse or, or, or Shostakovich or, or whoever, Sibelius. It was a variation form that was the thing that he found of endless fascination uh, uh, in, in all his works. Well, we're now going to a piece from 1970, uh, Nocturne et Alba, Part 2. Tell us about this, because this is uh, fairly different than the variations, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is where one of those transitions from him becoming known as a pianist to becoming known as a composer occurs. Nocturne et Alba is... Uh, to my mind, a stone-cold masterpiece. And it's probably his first real masterpiece. It's a song cycle for soprano and orchestra, a fairly large orchestra. It's a succession of four nocturnes followed by the alba, which is the dawn, so it's a, a Spanish term. And it's a setting of Latin uh, poems from the Middle Ages, dealing with night and uh, the things that, that occur in dreams. And this second movement we're about to hear is called Phantoms. It's actually a non-vocal, the one non-vocal movement. It's, it's mainly just for percussion. It leads at a kind of interlude between the first and the second uh, songs. Um, and the things of longing and, uh, and so on for your lover to come home or uh, waiting for the dawn. So this uh, uh, second piece is called Phantoms in just for percussion, although the woodwind and the brass do, do come in at times. Okay, listeners, imagine the night gradually falling. Let's listen. Thank you. 
when John McCabe's Phantom from his Nocturne at Alba Part 2 percussion scherzo played by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra conducted by Louis Fremo. I like that very much too. I, I kept imagining Midsummer Night's Dream to the entire to the entire piece of music. Yeah, there is an element of that with the, the featuring and uh, the flutes and uh, and so on. It, but it, there is something of, of that dreamlike uh, quality to it. And, and but it also gives, shows you what a fine orchestral imagination he had. I mean, sometimes with the pianist composers, the orchestration is hard won. And they really have to work at it. I think John really did think orchestrally. I remember seeing uh, one, one of the time, first times I met him, he composed a piano piece called Tenebrae, which is one of his big um, piano pieces written for Barry Douglas. And I was looking through the score, and there were constant little um, directions to play like uh, Saul Ponticelli or, or sound like the violas or sound like the brass in the piano uh, oh. score, because he wanted to think of that kind of sound when the pianist was playing. Well, that, I'm I'm being won over here, guy. So Good. let's now let's go to the fifth of the nocturne, and here we're going to hear the wonderful soprano Jill Gomez again with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Louis Fremont. What is she going to be singing about? About the dawn. This is the Alba. The, uh, the, the after the four nocturnes, we then have a, there's a little orchestral. Uh, prelude that uh, describes the, the rising of the sun, and now we have a, a rapturous welcome of the new day uh, in song, and it's a wonderful piece. Well, let's let's imagine the dawn coming up with someone you you love. Let's listen to John McCabe's fifth movement of his Nocturne at Alba. The fifth section of Nocturne at Alba by John McCabe. Very compelling dramatic music, Guy. Yes, and, and wonderfully scored. There's quite a large orchestra involved. It was revived in London in December, so I November. I had the opportunity to go and actually see it. Uh, uh, Wonderful. And, it. and it, it's amazing how 
with such a large orchestra, he never overwhelms the singer. Right. Uh, and she's able to, to, to sing through, even when they're playing quite quite loudly, and the scoring is never really full, in that sense, to, to overwhelm. Very, very precisely uh, uh, calculated and, and, and nicely imagined. No, I heard, I heard every word, even though I, I was having to try to translate. Um, we're now going to move to another piano piece from 1970, and this was a piece inspired by the Catalan architect Gaudi. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, I, I put this one in um, partly because, of course, uh, your listeners may know that Gaudi's great final work, the um, Cathedral of the Sagrada Familia, has finally been completed after some 80 years or, or 90 years of, of building and, and uh, being fully um, uh, consecrated with all the towers now in place. Um, John, in his various tours around Europe and indeed the Middle East and North America, um, had, had gone to Spain to Australia and had seen what was in 1969-70 still the very incomplete uh, building and was inspired by it and Gaudi's very, very unusual in particular style of architecture. Um, he was also uh, slightly inspired by one or two of Stockhausen's piano pieces and, and your listeners mailing on the Stockhausen was one of the leading lights of the very extreme radical avant-garde and used, made a great deal of use of aleatorical chance elements in his music um, or blocks of, of pieces that, that the composer or the pianist could, could perform in any order but, well John didn't quite follow that but what he did like was some of the sounds that came out of it and, and with Gaudi's inspiration coming largely from rocks, especially the great mountain of Montserrat that sits out right. in Barcelona. He, he tried to use that in this one of a series of 13 independent studies, some of them are quite long, um, to represent Gaudi, and it's, uh, I think, a fascinating uh, piece. And this, this again, uh, we'll hear the opening um, in a little to, um, to get a, a sense of this stark um, uh, sound world. Well, again, composer John McCabe will be playing Gaudi, we, as we listen, imagine the great cathedral in Barcelona. Here we go. That was the first minute, two minutes, of John McCabe's Gaudi, a piano study from 1970. He really has a a fondness for those high upper keys. He likes making wonderful tinkling sounds up there. He, he does, yes. And you can hear that in, in, in the other words. I mean, with this piece, um, I found a little note where he was kind of just describing some of those uh, qualities of the architecture he wanted to 
to to um, depict bells, deep gong sounds, contrast mm. to decoration yeah. with static sculpture, intricate ornamentation, and, and so on. And that that moving up and down the key board, the variety of the very high with the very low, um, again something especially in these, in these piano pieces that um, uh, occurs quite uh, uh, quite a lot. Yeah, I enjoyed that too very much, Guy. Now we're going to move to his one of his symphonies, Symphony Number no. Three, homages. From eight years later, 1978, we're going to hear the opening played by the concert BB's concert orchestra conducted by Barry Wordsworth. What should we expect here? Where well, this is the first of the symphonies we've, we've been listening to. Yeah, he wrote seven symphonies in all. Although there is an organ symphony and a, and a symphony for instruments um, uh, even earlier, but. These orchestral symphonies, this is the third, and I think this is, well, it, it's, it's almost like a concerto for orchestra. Actually, he did go on and write a concerto for orchestra for Schulte a few years later, but it has a ravishing sound world. And his idea was to pay tribute to some composers who had meant a lot to him, particularly Haydn and uh, Nielsen, and in the slow movement of the work, he kind of looks at part of the string quartet over 76, number 6, by Haydn, Elsewhere, Nielsen's uh, piano suite, Opus 45. But actually, at the beginning, there was much of Zimanovsky or, 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 or other composers in there as well. It's sometimes fun to play, ooh, spot the, spot the influence. But actually, it's all drawn together in uh, his own uh, musical voice, as if he was saying, well, you know, I like this composer and I like these works and so on. And it's a kind of musical representation of that, brilliantly. Uh, drawn together as a three movement symphony, um, and we'll hear uh, the opening, the beginning of the opening, uh, which is marked flexibly or flexibly, um, and to give us some impression of the, the impression of, of what it is trying to uh, um, depict as a direction for the musicians and also um, for the audience to hear. Well, let's listen to the opening of John McCabe's third symphony, Homages.
Oh, I liked that very much. We're talking with music critic Guy Ricards about the music of John McCabe, and we'll be right back. I am back with one of the finest music critics in the United Kingdom, Guy Ricard, who I'm also proud to call a friend. And we're talking about one of his favorite contemporary British composers, John McCabe, who's no longer with us. And we've moved to the 1980s now. We're going to be listening to a piece for brass band called Cloud Catcher Falls. And Guy, this, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, John was born in, in Liverpool, so he was a, a northerner. And the brass band movement in the north of England is particularly strong. Uh, they have national championships, and, and quite a few classical composers in Britain have written pieces for them over, over time. And John wrote about five uh, in total. This is the one, though, that caught everyone's attention. Um, it's based on a poem called Cockermouth, if you like, by David Wright, where the, the title Cloudcatcher Fells um, comes mm-hmm. in. And it's about four different areas in the Lake District, the little mountainous district in northwest uh, England, which he knew well. He often went uh, for holidays there. Um, and it's an, a musical evocation of um, that part of the world. And, and the opening uh, part here is uh, an evocation of, of, of Great Gable and, and Grassmoor. The, the makeup of the brass band, for those who don't know, it's a little bit like the symphonic wind bands that we have in the US, except it is just brass instruments. So cornets, rather than trumpets, horns, trombones, uh, uh, euphoniums, uh, and so on, and a bit of percussion as well. Well, as we listen, we can imagine the landscape that inspired William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the Lake District exactly. of England. So let's listen to Cloudcatcher Fells.
Well, that's quite beautiful. That is Cloud Catcher Fells by John McCabe, written in 1984, played by the Black Dyke Mills Brass Band, conducted by Major Peter Park. Guy, you knew I'd like that one, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I knew you'd like that. It's <laughs> one of his most English pieces, I think. And, mm-hmm. and he was, and for all his international kind of view of, of and, and inspiration and, and so on, he, he was an English composer. He held Vaughan Williams in enormous esteem. Um, I think you hear in some of the orchestral pieces that there's a bit of Britain tippet in there as well. A lot of Britain. Yeah. A lot of Britain. Or all, all, all McCabe. And certainly McCabe's compositional process is very different to Britain. But yes, there's a, there's that edge to the sound that's quite similar. However, I don't think Britain would ever have written a piece like that. No, not that one at all. No, that was that was that was English, but but it was particular to McCabe and yeah, very interesting. Now we're going to be moving to another symphony, Symphony Number no. Four of Time and the River, composed between 1995 and 1996. And we're going to have we're going to have a treat. We're going to hear the voice of John McCabe. Tell us about that. Yeah, I thought it would be nice to have the man himself introduce the piece. He was a very uh, succinct and, and, and fine speaker about music in general and his own pieces. And I thought it would be nice just to give a, a have him introduce it. The, the title people may know is is the same as that of the Thomas Wolfe novel. And there is a very slight connection to it. It's not a depiction of, of the novel in any way. But let's, let's hand over to John. He will explain the, the idea behind this um, remarkable symphony. We're going to hear the BBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by David Atherton. This is Symphony Number no. 4 of Time and the River, beginning with the voice of the composer himself. It's in two parts rather than four. The idea behind it is two things. First of all, uh, part one gradually gets slower imperceptibly, so you can't always tell when the pulse has changed. You can only tell just after it's changed that it's actually getting slower and comes to sort of almost a full stop. Part two, it gradually does the opposite, which is getting quicker, which I actually found much easier to write out. And the other thing about it is that it's... Uh, a progression through the whole cycle of fifths from D major, and it is D major at the start, which is a very positive key, to A flat minor at the end of part one, which is a very negative key, it seems to me, and certainly is, is, is meant to be negative. So it's from positive to negative and then back again, gradually, coming back to the opening of the symphony and the opening tonality at, 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 towards the end. So it's positive to negative to positive again, and it's this, this tempo change which matches the positive energy moving to something slower and nothing happening really at the beginning of part two. It's, it's nothingness, and then gradually things start to happen. But that, that's the overall shape of it.
this was a beginning of the symphony number four of Time and the River by John McCabe, and I wanted it to keep going, Guy. Works for me. I mean, I just I got completely involved in the development of that little string theme running along. Is that is that supposed to be a train? I don't know if it's necessarily the train. The idea was that in Wolf's book, there are lots of um, significant journeys that are conducted by train, and um, that just spurred his imagination. There is a remarkable piece about a third of the way through the second movement where if you're traveling, if you know the effect when you're traveling in a train next to another train which is moving in the same direction, but because you're moving faster, the train next to you appears to be going backwards. And there's an extraordinary passage about, as I say, about a third of the way in the second, the second movement as the tempi are beginning to pick up and, and speed up where he, he, he depicts that in sound. Um, quite extraordinary um, uh, thing. Although he did also say that he had the epigraph of Orson Olden 9, who knoweth that the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth down, downward to the earth. So I think there are a lot of things going on in this place. Well, the, I mean, that's a very, as I say, really drew me in quickly. Um, now I'm going to move to his fifth symphony, which is entitled Edward the Second from 1997. Now, didn't he write an entire ballet, Edward the Second? Indeed, and this symphony is an extract from that ballet, which is uh, he had a little patch of, of writing several ballets for David Bindley, Bindley in the, uh, the Birmingham Royal Ballet. This was the first, uh, although he'd originally written it for Bindley when he was in Stuttgart, and then they revived it uh, for Birmingham. There were a couple of ballets on Arthur. Um, and having produced three full-length ballets, he decided he was part of the dirt out and didn't want to do anymore. But, um, yes, Edward II was, is I think the best of them, um, based loosely on, um, the Christopher Marlowe play that is about right. Edward. Um, and the symphony, um, takes key moments. What's unusual about the symphony is it works both as a dance piece and as a symphony and a symphonic music. And normally the two, if you think of Stravinsky, they're very dance-like, but they're not terribly symphonic in that kind of organic development kind of way. Well, McCabe's is. Um, and so what we'll hear is this, the opening, which is a procession marking the death of Edward I and the accession of Edward II. There's a procession across the stage in the ballet, and then we just hear um, the, 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 the music of the, of the main ballet start. And that tune then comes back right at the end after Edward has been murdered and his teenage son, Edward III, uh, uh, then becomes uh, the king. But it's, it sounds like a, a Gorian chant. It's not. It's a John's own invention. We'll be hearing the BB National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Christopher Austin, in the opening of John McCabe's Fifth Symphony, Edward II.
the opening of John McCabe's Fifth Symphony, Edward II. Now, that music is dark and tragic. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. Absolutely right. And it, you know, it is a, a, a dirge to accompany a funeral cortege. But then that last little, little, little bit where the cortege is gone and Edward is left on his own, that little sort of uh, flute line is almost like a motif for him. He's, there's darkness behind it because this is a tragedy. Um, and of course, it's the, the, the ballet and the symphony reflects this, um, reflects the wars that then came out from his antagonism with his, his barons. There's a wonderful scene in the ballet where the barons in long hair jump up on the table and dance this sort of furious, um, uh, dance of, of, of defiance of the king. And the second act does a wonderful dance for, for his wife, Isabella, who leads a revolt. She was known as the she-wolf of, of France. And believe me, when you see her in this brilliant red outfit she dances a sword dance that uh, is quite as good as anything Cacciaturian ever did um, <laughs> it's a fantastic spectacle and again the music, music is really unified um, it's a quite unusual to an unusual degree the symphony encapsulates it it's about I suppose a little over a third of the length of the ballet as a whole so you get all the uh, um, the, the main uh, aspects but you have to see it um, Really well, you know, it won awards, I believe, that it did, the it ballet did. did. Yeah. And there are so many here of McCabe's pieces that we've discussed that are tied to either history or to a figure or to a, a time or theme or a mood. Did he ever write a film score? He did write um, a film score, uh, also with scores for TV. Um, uh, he wrote a theme music to a little um, soap opera set in the north of England called Sam. Um, he scored a couple of episodes for a series of hammer horror um, episodes, a little half hour long um, episodes, and, and one of the ones he did was a. a, a uh, if you remember the Chilean air disaster where they crashed? And oh yeah, a lot. The movie's called Alarm. But he did. He, he, the episode envisaged a kind of 20 years later a get-together where, where they, will, they all meet up and, and basically eat somebody. Um, and that's the horror nature of things. John just provided the incidental music. I think he had a bit of fun. Now, is that recorded somewhere? Uh, I don't think it has been. I think you can see in YouTube somewhere the, episode, the whole episode, so you will incidentally hear um, John's music in the background. But, um, hmm. It's only about half an hour long, but um, yeah, it's great. I think he quite enjoyed doing that kind of thing. There's not much, though, uh, in, in that uh, respect. Did he write any operas? He wrote an opera, on, a children's opera, um, on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, which is mired in copyright, alas. Really? The estate um, of uh, C.S. Lewis um, bizarrely assumed that uh, to give permission for it to be staged once and then never again. <laughs> so they've basically suppressed it. And, of course, when the films came out, they... And got strong-armed by Hollywood into um, uh, allowing a film to be made and, and obviously having more um, far-reaching rights. So, yes, John's score is, is stuck in limbo. Um, it was that's staged that's in, in Bath in the 60s. But. Well, is he, was he a religious man? I noticed, I noticed earlier that he wrote a tenebrae piano piece for Barry Douglas. Was he, what was his relationship um, to religion? He didn't really have any, I think it would be fair to say. He did set some texts, I and mean, then there's a Sam like Arthur and a few other ones. Um, his uh, wife was, was, was Christian, so there are a few pieces that she often acted as a kind of librettist or text selector for him, so he did set some uh, religious uh, um, texts, but I don't think that he um, held any strong religious views. But on the other hand, he didn't, he didn't stay away from them either. No, no. I, I think. I mean, anybody yeah. that would set Lion Witch in the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, that, of course. That's full-fledged yeah. Christianity, right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, now we come to the first of his solo instrumental concerto work, a cello concerto entitled "Song Line," and I, I happen to love the cello, and I love cello concertos. And 
is this is the fact that it's called Songline, or can we expect to hear a Songline as we listen? No, the Songlines are um, based on the invisible pathways of the Australian Aborigines, um, and they do. Yes, they kind of sing them into night. A recurring theme in John's music is music of landscape. Cloudcatcher Fells is, if you like, an, an example of that dream. But he wrote a series of pieces called Desert. He wrote a series of pieces called Rainforest. He's very influenced by the music of the Australian outback. He toured quite a bit in Australia. And this is a piece that's related to that desert series. Um, it's partly connected to Bruce Chatwin's book, The Songlines, as well. Where oh, yeah, of course. I thought, I thought so I'd forgotten that, that. That's the connection. Okay. Um, and so... What you have it here is, is, is a work that, that starts on the, the concerto. The soloist sings, if you like, or the, the work comes through um, this sort of sense of landscape that's uh, um, set out at the beginning. It was written for, for Charles Mork, who's a great Norwegian uh, cellist who is, is yeah. the soloist here. Charles Mork. John loved concertos. He wrote dozens of concertos, almost every single instrument. Four well, this, instrument. Yeah. this is actually the first performance, correct, that we're going to hear? This is the first performance that we're going to hear. We're going to hear Mark Elder conduct his Halle Orchestra and the cellist is Truls Mork playing John McCabe's cello concerto song line. Let's listen. Wonderful. That's John McCabe's cello concerto called Songline. And Guy, you won me over. I'm a fan now of the music of John McCabe, and uh, excellent. I'm well, really glad that you suggested we do this. Oh, that's my pleasure. I think he's a, a marvelous composer. Um, lots and lots of very good pieces. I don't really know of a poor one, to be honest with you. They're immaculately written and, and communicate. They all communicate. Well, we've come to the end of our hour together, Guy, and I want to thank you again for taking your time to be on Church and Culture. My pleasure. And to all your listening, we'll be back in a moment with another wonderful guest.